I'd like to begin by thanking the Academy for making me an honoree on this occasion. Um, I was told that I perhaps should speak about how I came to be, do what I've been doing. And I think I ought to give a little history. I work at the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology. It's the place, not exactly the same location, but the same lab where the DNA double helix was discovered by Crick and Watson, where Kendrew and Perutz were the first to find out the three-dimensional structure of proteins. And Fred Sanger, who is here today and will speak later, showed how to sequence DNA, the genetic material. And these people have been something like elder brothers to me. I, for the last um, uh, almost 40 years, I worked in Cambridge after some years in London. I came to Cambridge as a research student from South Africa, where I grew up. And uh, I, after beginning as a medical student, um, pre-med, I did physiology, biochemistry, things of that sort, but got rather bored with anatomy and moved to science, uh, eventually graduating in uh, chemistry, physics, and mathematics. Uh, now, these things were preparations for a later life yet to come, but I didn't do anything things consciously. I followed my instinct, and I had, luckily enough, um, I was young enough and had enough patience and persistence uh, to eventually to find out something uh, about what I really wanted to do, but that only came later. Um, I, um, at school, I was interested in almost everything and um, decided to do medicine because it was a way of doing microbiology, having read about the great heroes, Pasteur and Koch. Um, but um, I found medicine, medical teaching, rather boring. Anatomy I found rather boring, although if I had perhaps been a student 10 years later when anatomy was taught with function, I might have well stayed. But uh, that's the way these things happen in life. There's lots of chance in how one uh, works out one's life. Well, my uh, first uh, scientific work was on the structure of viruses. Uh, small plant viruses, well, also poliovirus, which I worked on. And here we were trying to determine the three-dimensional structure by using X-ray diffraction, X-ray crystallography. Now, these were very large molecules, very large particles, uh, many millions of molecular weight, and nobody had ever worked these things out before. And we didn't really have the tools to do it. So it was a kind of voyage of discovery. Uh, uh, we had an aim, we knew we were going, but we didn't know the route there. And it was as if we had to build the ship along the way. That's the best way I can describe, that we had to develop processes and tools to do it. And I had sufficient background in these different scientific disciplines to be able to do it when I had to. But there was no grand plan. You simply did the best you could in the circumstances. Well, the structure of viruses turned out to be most interesting. Uh, small viruses tend to be either shape of spheres or rods, and they are built of, uh, speaking very generally now, of arrays of protein subunits which uh, form a kind of shell or coat, either of a cylindrical rod or of a sphere. And um, these arrays of subunits are essentially identical. It's because it's very economical to make large, large numbers of copies of a single uh, protein, which is coded for by a single gene. And in fact, the spherical viruses um, turn out to be most interesting because they have the design of geodesic domes. They have the symmetry of the icosahedron, 
which some of you will know, of course, of Buckminster Fuller, and there was a certain amount of stimulation uh, by looking at his domes, which made me realize how these shells were built. Now, we didn't, um, we had an idea, we had a theory of how these shells were assembled, and we did experimental work on actually following the dynamics of the assembly. But uh, in order to understand more, we turned to electron microscopy, or rather I turned to electron microscopy, which was then uh, some rather good microscopes, but people didn't really understand what they were looking at. I say this quite frankly. And I had the advantage of being, an uh, being a non-expert. And one day when I retire, I may write an essay on the advantages of not being an expert, because I didn't know what couldn't be done. Um, I was lucky to be in an environment where the MRC laboratory, where this could be done, where I had the freedom and the access to resources which enabled me to do this, together with some gifted collaborators. And I discovered how to make a three-dimensional model, this is what was referred to earlier in the introduction, out of a series of two-dimensional projections. Uh, you see in the electron microscope what we were looking at was a projection, everything in the line of view, everything in the line of view was projected into two dimensions, just like a medical radiograph. And I gradually found out a method of tilting the specimen through a series of angles, taking a series of two-dimensional photographs, and then writing mathematical and computer programs uh, to build a three-dimensional model. This was in the context of electron microscopy, but in fact it was the principle of the X-ray CAT scanner. And in those days, we didn't have the culture of taking out patterns of things of that sort. So it was picked up by the uh, radiologists, and so their first X-ray scanner was built. Now, that illustrates the point that you sometimes get benefits from a scheme, from a structure or um, field of investigation which bears fruit in the most unexpected way. And it's something I've always tried to stress to our paymasters, because we worked in public institutions, that we really have to be given your freedom to follow your, uh, what you feel is curiosity in some interesting project. It isn't always the case, sometimes you get direct benefits, but in many cases, new discoveries come from unexpected quarters. It's something that's very difficult for um, politicians, ministers used to come and see our lab, why aren't you doing something which is useful, which is relevant? Well, we tell them we were advancing knowledge, but they want immediate applications to knowledge. And one of the things I found when later I became director of the laboratory was to try to tell people that these things do pay off, and they pay off in time. And when we used to have people visit our laboratory and look at the work on the fruit fly, Drosophila, and when I told them that some of the genes which um, dictated the pattern of the uh, segmentation of, of, of flies, uh, well, these, are, these are segmented animals, and that these genes were related to the genes which determined, say, the pattern uh, which determined the backbone of the spine of mammals, the vertebrates, their eyes glazed over in complete disbelief. Um, but now I think this is accepted. But uh, as I say, the, uh, at the Medical Research Council laboratory, uh, we had the freedom to be in it for the long term. And that's uh, paid off. Now, in the, the story about the DNA structure and uh, is, refers to the work on chromatin. 
After the work on viruses, we really had built techniques which could apply to more, perhaps more interesting, more basic problems. And I turned to chromatin, the structure of material in which chromosomes are made. And we really again had to, uh, very little was known about how the DNA was packaged in chromosomes. See, the DNA double helix is a rather slender object and has to be packaged in such a way that it's in a tight space of a, of, of, of a nucleus. And if the DNA of a chromosome were laid out, it would be of 40 centimeters, and this has to be packed into a space of just a few microns. So we knew there had to be a compression, but how was it done? And moreover, the DNA had to be accessible. It couldn't be sequestered, pa packed away inside black boxes, which a key had unlock. That isn't the way things work. It had to be able to respond to signals, to proteins which recognize the DNA. And so, um, the long and short of it is that I discovered, together with Roger Kornberg, the nucleosome, uh, in which it's a little package of DNA, rather like two turns of a hose, of a garden hose pipe around a spool. Uh, here the DNA was packaged in a, comp in, a, in a condensed way, at the same time it was accessible to signals from the outside world. That came as quite a surprise. And uh, so, um, uh, after that, I um, began looking at structures of other macromolecules. And I should say the theme that's run through my scientific life has been the structure and function of macromolecules, proteins and nucleic acids and their interactions, uh, viruses and chromatin. Well, um, I have uh, continued to work on this field. I am president of the Royal Society, which is a great responsibility. We have to deal not only with promoting science, but dealing with the public's problems with science, GM crops, therapeutic cloning, all these sort of things which occupy my time. But during these five years, I have been kept up a small research group in Cambridge. I have the luxury of being able to do that. And I worked on a system of proteins which I discovered, which are called zinc fingers. Um, these zinc fingers are small modular structures, small, small proteins, only 30 amino acids, which recognize the sequence of DNA specifically. And I've used with my colleagues this design to build artificial, they know the synthetic proteins, which can pick out a sequence of DNA, uh, send the DNA into a cell, I won't say how that's done, uh, into, um, to, to recognize the regulatory sequence on the DNA to switch a gene on and off. And this is proving successful. And uh, I still hope when I leave the Royal Society in a month or two uh, to go back and do this work more intensely. I've also, when I was director of the lab, uh, started some work on Alzheimer's disease because I thought that there we had some new techniques where we could get out the material. You see, people had, Alzheimer's disease had been the purview of neuropathologists. And, but um, the question was, how do you turn a clinical problem into a biochemical one? And by using the kind of experience we'd gained with other systems, and of course things don't carry over immediately, but you have a kind of feeling for a result of experience, you might call it intuition, of how to go about this thing. So we made some progress in understanding um, uh, the basic neuropathology of Alzheimer's disease, the, neurofibrillary tangles, the so-called filaments, which uh, uh, come into cells in later life. In earlier life, there are some familial forms of this disease. I'm going to give a lecture on Alzheimer's disease. But I do want to point out that 
uh, some things in branches of science can be carried over, uh, never in the same way, but always uh, with uh, some background, you can begin to tackle new problems. And I do hope that this um, short talk illustrates uh, the fact that I simply didn't ever start out with any particular ambition. I was interested in these things and just followed my instincts. And if there's anything of advice I give to the younger people, I say don't always follow your, what your teachers tell you. My PhD was actually in physics and, and the phase transitions in solids, a very boring subject uh, in most people's estimation, but nevertheless provided me with most invaluable tools and training, uh, which proved very effective in later life. Um, I wrote computer programs, which I wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, in the early days of computers, I learned about phase transitions, about the fascinating properties of inert matter. And so it was a very reasonable thing to go on to biological matter, uh, the structure of living machinery. Thank you. What kind of role do you think government should play in biochemistry, you know, with the issues of cloning now and DNA? Oh, government. Uh, well, uh, are you talking about uh, kind of research that's done in the laboratories, or do you mean yes. about uh, legislation and things of, of that sort? Restrictions or et cetera, what you think that they should have within the biochemistry field? Well, I don't think there should be any restrictions on what research is done in the laboratories. I think, however, on the applications, they do raise certain social and uh, questions, uh, perhaps legal questions. And so the implications of say, the human genome sequence do, do matter. And I've been involved with the president of the National Academy of the USA, Bruce Alberts, in making, trying to point out that the DNA sequence of genes, which is now being determined at a great rate, do not constitute patentable uh, inventions. They are discoveries and that they are, anybody who claims to own the patent for a gene and the courts have been granting them, this has, will have to be pursued. Um, this is a claim to something, to a function which is not known and the use which has not yet been established. So that's our view when it comes to this and we hope that governments will take action if the courts don't decide the right way.